Good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are, are doing well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, if you have a copy of, of God's Word. And we're going to begin, begin reading in verse 16 in just a few moments. We're on our third message into the plagues or signs today. And today we're going to cover two of those. Um, you can call those plague or sign three or four, or as we've been counting, four and five when you include um, the first showdown between the Lord and the magicians of Pharaoh when he, they cast their staff down, they turned the serpents, and the Lord's staff swallowed serpents, uh, the Pharaoh's serpents. So we're going to keep it simple, and we're just going to call it four and, and five. If you might remember, the first major sign, however, was when the Lord turned the Nile River, the lifeblood of the economy, the food, the travel, and the worship, and the water source of all of Egypt, turned the Nile River into blood, taking their lifeblood and turning it into literally blood, and was causing them to thirst and crops to die, and nothing exposing the falseness of their worship, we saw how the Lord is making his demands on mankind that he alone is to be worshiped and he alone is the only one can give abundant life. Yet we also saw in that the devastating response of the Egyptians. What did they do? Instead of turning to the Lord, they dug ditches for their water next to the river to try to find something. And that's what we do. When our idols are exposed, when something isn't satisfying, when, when we realize the thing that we've been placing hope into has just turned into an absolute sham, what do we do is we turn to something else that the world has to offer or we try to dig our way to, to abundant life. And yet God exposes them as they are, digging ditches for water. The second sign we saw as described as a plague right, which means death. So literally there's a, there's a death in this particular sign, and this particular death was the sign of frogs. You guys remember that from last week? Not one frog, not ten frogs, not a hundred frogs, or even a thousand frogs, but a million frogs, millions and millions of frogs all of a sudden showing up, croaking everywhere, and they were in their homes, they were in their courtyards, they were in their bedrooms, in their kitchens, and in their, I don't know if they had bathrooms, but you know where they would go to the bathroom. There was frogs. They were in the pots and pans. They were in the ovens. There were frogs everywhere. And that's pretty hard to take lemons and make lemonade, right? There's only so many frog legs you can eat. We certainly remarked how the land stunk, and death became the sign to them. And the Lord chose to humiliate them with frogs. Hilarious, frogs. And God chose to humiliate them with frogs. And of course, this is showing the sovereignty of God and his mercy as well, right? Because he's showing Pharaoh that this is the smell of death. And if you think the smell of death is bad, wait till I kill your firstborn. It's going to be nowhere near equivalent. And God in his mercy is calling them to relent and to let his people go. And so with each sign, there's an escalation, an increasing of the severity of the judgment of God. And it's a warning to all of us to do not fall into the hands of the living God. But to repent and to put your faith in Christ. So the themes that we've been seeing so far is the sovereignty of God. We've seen the theme of in the signs. Why is God given the signs? And he tells us over and over and over in the text. And we're going to see it again today. That the Lord is making himself known. I'm doing these things so that you will know that it's me. And I'm the only God. Again, we'll see that again this morning. We see the theme of mercy, and this morning we're going to see some new themes, and we have lots of reading, so let's look at verse 16 together. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this shall happen. And the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right for us to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he has told us, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness Only you must not go very far, far away. Plead for me. And then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh for his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let Pharaoh not cheat again by letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord did as Moses asked, excuse me, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and the people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired an inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. The first sign, as we've already mentioned, the Nile River turning into blood, that was pretty serious. That was a pretty serious sign. The second one was a little bit different and pretty kind of funny. All these croaking frogs everywhere. Ha ha, we can get a good laugh of that. But when you read these next two signs, These are no laughing matter. If anyone thinks that gnats and flies are funny and that they are really not a big deal, that is not a big deal, then they have no idea how much they are underestimating those demonic little creatures. Now, I do not have to tell you all this. We had a few amens there. You know this. You know how bad gnats are. You know how bad gnats are here. Not not now. I mean, the gnats aren't around now. Praise God, right? (laughs) But in a couple weeks, literally, in a couple weeks, come, come spring and summer, 
it is almost going to be unbearable to be outside. When Christina and I moved here with baby Eva, she was only five months at the time, and we visited Statesboro right around the end of February, right at, actually it was right on our anniversary. The weather was awesome, it was beautiful. And there was no bugs. And nobody had the heart to tell us that, hey, if you move here, man, let me tell you about the gnats. But Providence was already set in motion, and we moved here, and we, just like the rest of you, have had, learn, had, have had to learn to persevere and to endure. Now, it's, it's not just the gnats either. We, we also have flies. And, and my family knows that I cannot stand flies. I get obsessed. I mean, literally, almost to a, to a sinful fault, right? I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with traps, the grossest things you've ever seen in the world, yet so satisfying to see them little suckers in there eating themselves. Fly strips, fly swatters strategically placed throughout the house. We have the little Chick-fil-A lights hanging on our wall. You know, that, that's what those thwarts for flights. Poison gases. Oh, yeah, I've used poison gases. Whatever it takes to get them away from me and away from our house. Now, our flies and nets, at least what we are told is natural. Brothers and sisters, we know we live in this thing called the gnat line. But theologically, let's, let's just be really clear. This is the curse. This is the curse. This is Genesis 3. When we live and we see these gnats and the flies, man, that's, that's the curse. But as bad as it is, it's only like 10, 20, 30 gnats at a time that may be swarming around our heads, trying to land in every orifice, trying to get sucked up in our nose or in our mouth. They're, that's the only ones that are swarming around our, our eyes, ears, and mouths, and it drives us nuts. I mean, it's so crazy that we'll, we'll buy, even us guys, us dudes, we'll go out and we'll buy, we'll find the Avon lady, and we'll buy the Avon spray that's for gnats. Like, I don't care what it smells like, just tell me, I'll rub it all over me, and I'll, and I'll do it. We'll even do this dumb thing taking dryer sheets and sticking in our hats and rubbing them all over ourselves. Have you seen people do that? Yeah, we'll go to Anderson's and we'll spend $12 on this little two-ounce thing of no gnats, which actually does work, by the way, but we're willing to spend that kind of money on something to relieve ourselves from this. But think about this sign. When they swarm us, it's not in the millions or the trillions as this text is telling us. I mean, it was an infestation of the whole land. And the Egyptians are kind of like us in some ways. They enjoy their comfort. They, they enjoy their, 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 their lifestyle. When you become the most powerful country in the world, you can afford a little bit more of a lavished, nicer lifestyle. But there is nothing that can destroy your comfort in your lifestyle, in your ease of life, than a bunch of gnats and flies. And we know this because we only have about seven nice days out of the year when you can sit outside and enjoy the beautiful weather without gnats and flies. In our passage this morning, the Lord is, once again, demonstrating his absolute sovereignty by humbling Egypt and Pharaoh with insects, with bugs, and, and, and some of the, the smallest of creatures, and they completely devastate their lifestyle. They completely devastate their comfort and their ease. Our passage this morning, quite a bit more than what we usually read, but it can be split up in four different ways. Verses 16 and 17 is the Lord's command to Moses and Aaron to bring about the sign of the, of the gnats. And then in this sign, uh, again, along with uh, uh, the one of the main themes, we see the sovereignty of God, yes, even in gnats. The second part, we can see that how in verses 18 and 19 bring back the magicians and how they, they absolutely fail 
again of what they are doing, but this time they are completely unable to do anything. And then we read the tragic response of the, hard, of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. The third part is verses 20 through 24, which is the next sign, the sign that the Lord sends upon the flies. But yet, in this passage, there is a very important theme or distinction that is made, and that's what we're going to, one of the things we're going to highlight this morning. And lastly, in verses 25 through 32, where Pharaoh wants to negotiate the terms of their respite. But Moses, we see, remains courageous and confident. In that, we see the overarching theme again, that it is the Lord who will save and redeem his people, setting them free, not Pharaoh. Now, the first point that I want us to see this morning, again, as we've been seeing, is this ongoing theme through the plagues and through the signs is the sovereignty of God even over the dust. Even over the dust. Now, I know what you're thinking, maybe, that another sermon on the sovereignty of God. And the answer to that question is yes. Because when you read over and over again that that is the main point and theme and thrust of a, of a text, then that is what needs to be preached. And yet here in these, these two signs, we see the sovereign hand of, of God, not just over big things, Right? We see God, certainly we believe he's over these, these big things, but God is also sovereign over the very smallest of things. We, we, we love to say, we love to say that God is sovereign, especially in, in relation to, to tragedy. We like to say God is sovereign over, over big events that happen in our world. And we say God is sovereign over, over salvation. And, and certainly, absolutely, without a doubt, is God sovereign over salvation. And all of these ways of using and believing and saying that God is sovereign is good and it's wonderful. But these signs also point to another reality is that our God's omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence is over even the dust. And the point to that truth is this, is that his sovereign, if he's sovereign over the big things, and if he's now, if we see now that he's sovereign even over the little things, then brother and sister, take note of this. Stored in the little bank in your mind, in the, the data places, right in your heart, whatever it takes. And remember always that there is nothing in your life that God is not utterly sovereign over. Utterly, completely, without mistake. Listen, that does not mean you're going to comprehend it. That's not your, not one. That does not mean that you're going to be able to take two and add it to two and understand. It's going to be like algebra. A plus B equals C. C, God is sovereign. You're not going to know. And we don't have to know. Why? Because God is sovereign. And we know he loves us. That's A. B is the event. C is he's sovereign. How do I reconcile that? And when you look at verse 16, Aaron, he, he stretches out his staff to, now to strike the dust of the earth. Now, now, to us, that may not be that big of a deal, right? Someone, like my kids take their sticks and they whack dirt all the time. But to, but to the Egyptians, they must have been terrified. Like, what does this mean? They've been, he's, been, they've, he's been whacking the water with the stick and it's turned to blood and it's turned to frogs. What does it mean now that he's going to whack the dust? To become gnats. And here is how we see this sign, this plague. It totally begins different than the, other, the previous two, doesn't it? Because here in this sign, Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh before at the river. But now, what is it? No warning. There's no warning here. There's no go to Pharaoh by the river. That's, that's in the next one. That was in the one before. But it's go and just strike the dust. Let the gnats just, just, just come up. Don't warn them. Don't tell them. And I think this is, I think we can read into this a little bit that this is a reprisal a little bit of Pharaoh lying about breaking his word. Now, as I've already noted, verse 17, 
Look at the magnitude of this. Consider the the magnitude and the, the scale of this event, of this sign. There were gnats on man and beast. That that statement is literally said in one way or another like three or four times there. And why? It is to emphasize, do not miss it. Gnats were on everything and everyone. All the dust of the earth. Because gnats are in the land of Egypt. The scale of of the amount of gnats we're, we're literally like even something we've never seen before. That's pretty bad. The dust of the earth, that gives us an image. An image of something that is unending. Everywhere. Painful, plentiful. You, you know the, the dust around your house. Right? You, you, you dust your house, you clean it up, and then magically, not really, but magically, a month later, there's dust all over again, all over the place. And, and if you, you didn't dust, it would, it would gather up and it would build up and, and, and it'll just get thicker and thicker and thicker because that's how dust works. In the, in the dry climates, if you've ever been out west or, or in the desert, the, the sand is, and dust is just unending. It, it gets into everything. And there's almost no way that you can keep it Keep your place clean. And so what he's pointing to us is, again, to to not miss the the scale and the the magnitude of this event of these little demonic creatures by the quatrillions. I think that's a real one. Or is it quintillions? We're going to know. Our debt's on on the way, and we're going to learn what the new number is. (laughs) Yeah. By the quatrillions. Now, I think there's something theological here. Because first, in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord formed man from what? From the dust of the earth. The very dust that we were made from is the very dust that the Lord uses as his sign. Only a sovereign God can do that. Genesis 13, the Lord told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And what does that mean? It means that they would be innumerable. In Genesis 28, Jacob is given the same promise that his offspring would be like the dust of the earth. Again, innumerable. Now, here's the connection with that. In in Exodus chapter 1, what is the promise that we see specifically beginning to be fulfilled in the people or in God's people? It's the promise from Genesis 13 and Genesis 28. The Israelites multiplied. They were no longer a family, but they became a people, a, a, a nation. Right? They were becoming many. God was blessing them and they were multiplying, having kids and more kids and more kids. And what does Pharaoh become fearful of in Exodus 1? The multitude. He becomes fearful of it. In chapter 5, also the same thing. They have become many. He is fearful of the fulfillment of this promise. And what does Pharaoh attempt to discourage through slavery? And by destroying them or trying to destroy them in infanticide because of his fear. He tries to destroy this very promise. This idea of God having Aaron and Moses strike the dust isn't just a play on words. It's not just a simple illustration, but it is deeply theological in that God is sovereign even over the dust, meaning meaning that as he has created man and the picture of multiplying his people is the dust, and now he is using the dust to show his strength and his power with these little creatures over Israel or over Egypt. And he's pointing to them the fulfillment of his promise to them to deliver his people. And this is foreshadowing the redemption that is about to come. Now, of course, we understand in much smaller ways 
Again, how small, how bad this sign is. We talked about it a little bit, right? We live in the Nat Belt. And they get into everything. They're relentless. And again, the, the more you, you swat at the things, the, the more frustrated you get. Because you literally, you can't hit the things. And if you do, they're so small and tiny and lightweight that you wouldn't even know it. So there's no satisfaction. Like with a fly, you whack a fly, the sucker explodes. That's satisfaction. But with the fly, you can, you can hit them all day and you don't even know. And when one dies, 10 come back up. They replace themselves, right? And the whole idea of this plague here, as well as showing how God's sovereignty is over the dust and with these gnats, he is showing to them that resistance to his will and his sovereignty and his power and his judgment is futile. Meaning, just like how we feel it with 10, 20, 30 gnats, you have already lost the battle before it even began. It's inescapable. And that's the scene, right? It, this, is, this is apocalyptic, isn't it? It's like a decreation taking place in these, in these plagues. It's apocalyptic. And we see the same thing within the, within the flies. Your resistance is futile. You were created from the dust, and now you shall return to the dust with dust. And again, like the frogs and with the flies, that through the gnats, the Lord is showing himself over and over again that he can use whatever he wants to whomever he wants and whenever he wants to show his absolute sovereignty and futile and his and resistance to it is futile. There was an interview, I think that took place a couple years back, an interview with uh, President Trump, and, and the reporter asked him uh, uh, in the interview, about the negotiations that, that was taking place between him and the, and the Taliban. And uh, there were pretty strong negotiations and it was for our, uh, our withdrawal out of Afghanistan, um, which was to take place quite a bit differently than it happened. Um, and, and Trump was very adamant to the leader of the Taliban and telling them basically if any Americans or any friends of ours are injured or killed in any of the process of our withdrawal out of Afghanistan, then that this Taliban leader, without doubt, you should know that I am threatening your life and the life of your family if any of that happens. And in that interview, Trump also said that the, that the, the Taliban leader kind of giggled at that and laughed at that and basically was like, we've been you know, invading you guys for years, you can't get us. And Trump said, oh yeah, I know where you live, and here it is, and he took the phone and he sent a picture to him of his house. That's where you are right now. And at that point, the Taliban later said, yes, sir, Mr. President. And as you know, from that time, we had no problems. And that's the kind of strong signal that this sign is saying. That God knows where we live. And that we could be taken out at any time, by any way, and that his resistance to him and to his sovereignty is futile. And God doesn't use missiles. He uses gnats. <laughs> you cannot run and you cannot hide from an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God. In verse 18... It zooms in to these magicians, and we've, we've seen these clowns for the last couple, last couple weeks. But, but this time, their tricks are completely useless. I mean, they can do nothing, which, which really probably is a sigh of relief, because all they were doing is just creating more of a problem. And here, though, they had no power, no ability at all to help them at all. They had no power, no ability. And here, we see again... God's power over them. And they are defeated. You, you, can, you can hear it in their voice, right? Just absolute defeated when they say, this is the finger of God. Now, now what an admission, right? What an admission here that over these weeks we have, we have seen to get to this point, and now we're starting to see the, the first cracks in the dam of Egypt. No more magic powers or sorcery is going to help you. Your gods have already proven themselves to be, 
to be useless. There is literally no hope here. And I want you to notice a few things about what they're admitting here. Because at first, it may sound to us that they're turning toward the Lord and, and believing, but that's not what they have done. They do not say the finger of Yahweh. They say God. They say Elohim or, or El, which is the general, non-specific way of referring to God. Now, brothers and sisters, we, can, we should be able to recognize this because this is the kind of language we see woven within, our, woven within our culture of people using the generic language of Christianity to make it sound like Christianity, but it's really not Christianity at all. We hear the words like, I couldn't have done this without God in my life. I would first like to thank God. God has changed my life. And these are the kind of phrases that we often hear in our cultures used by celebrities and, and athletes and politicians and even friends and, and family. But we must be discerning because these generic affirmations are not the same thing as the speaking about the Lord Yahweh and Jesus Christ himself. Because if you in this public culture today give glory and recognize Jesus Christ as God, trust me, you're not going to be as cool as you were. You're not going to be as acceptable as you are. So that's not what these guys are, are doing. However, here's the second thing, is that although they're not acknowledging Yahweh, what are they acknowledging? They are acknowledging that what has taken place with all of these gnats, that this is a supernatural act. They are admitting that this did not happen on its own, and nor was it us. There isn't a naturalistic or rational explanation here. They are admitting that by saying the finger of God. And despite what modern liberals may say, the gnats were not some natural phenomena that came out of the dead frogs, uh, came from the, the dead frogs, and the frogs only came because there was a uh, because the river turned red and it made them come out of, the, out, of the, uh, out of the river. Because if that was true, wouldn't the magicians have said, this is natural, Pharaoh. This is normal. Don't worry about it. No. They say, this is the finger of God. And although they're not acknowledging Yahweh, what are they doing? They're, they're beginning to connect. They're beginning to connect the dots, aren't they? And they're connecting the dots and saying that what Moses and Aaron are saying about Yahweh and the things that he said that he would do, they are seeing that it is exactly what he is doing. And in their acknowledgement, what are we doing? What are we also seeing? We're seeing a partial fulfillment of what God has already promised Moses. And when, Mo when God promised Moses what? That they would know that this is the Lord. That's a fulfillment of what's happening. And this is the, perf the, the first public acknowledgement of that. And so now, the, for the fourth time, these clowns, these magicians, these clowns are used to prove the sovereignty of God, whether by their interaction and now by their very words. And then as we see at the end, tragically, Pharaoh, despite the failure of the magicians and admission, Pharaoh's heart remains hard, and he would not listen. He rejects God. His heart continues to be hard. And once again, brothers and sisters, we're starting to grasp the idea why Paul uses Pharaoh in Romans 9 to describe the sovereignty of God over the hearts of men. Evidence exists. The evidence of the existence of Yahweh is not Pharaoh's problem, is it? The evidence of the existence of Yahweh is everywhere. Romans 1, right? We, we know it. He exists. His revelation and, and is generally shown throughout creation. But like Paul says in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, hard hearts, suppress the truth. Romans 1. The sovereignty of God here is, as we have already mentioned, is God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes to redeem his people. And as Pharaoh in his sinful state hardens his heart as well. But also here in verse 19 ends with the phrase, and I want to show this last phrase that shows to us the sovereignty of God. As Moses gives us this little commentary in this little phrase, it says, as the Lord had said. And we, we breeze by that when we're in our reading, don't we? 
But what is Moses telling us? He's saying, listen, this is what God has already told us is going to happen. And it's happening right, right here. God decreed this. God foreknew this. So, so take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. I don't think we can say it enough that our God, the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty, that He is the one and only God, and His Son is Jesus Christ. He is sovereign, and He is over everything, including the dust. And that should build our confidence in Christ as we live in this world, but not of this world. It builds our confidence in your fight against sin. That struggle that you're facing now, apply the sovereignty of God to it. And kill it. Kill it with the truth. That's the sword. Put the, the flesh to death. It builds our confidence to be bold in the gospel. So that you can speak clearly and precisely about the name of Christ. To not deny the truth. It's what builds our confidence to love one another. You know when it's hard? When loving one another is hard, it's a real struggle. Why is this person putting me through this? Sovereignty of God. I will love. This person's in my life for a reason. Sovereignty of God. And brothers and sisters, listen to me on this one. The sovereignty of God gives us confidence because one day Jesus will come back. And as the righteous judge in his judgments, they will be far more extensive and vast and devastating than gnats. And that gives us confidence to endure. And to endure well. And to persevere in Christ. Through the, the judgment of Egypt, the magicians, they acknowledge the finger of God and the judgment to come. But when, when Christ returns, brothers and sisters, all will know. As the Egyptians will know that it is the Lord their God, all will know. Philippians 2, verse 9. God has exalted, highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him Christ, the name that is above every name, Christ, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All will know. And now looking at the next sign in verses 20 through 32, if you thought that the gnats were bad, then don't think about flies here because gnats are not, or flies are not just annoying, but they are flat out gross and unfathomably gross on a scale like this. In fact, as the text tells us, is that it's devastating. Now, this plague just tracks with the previous ones before the gnats and tells, tells Moses and Aaron to go out to Pharaoh, meet him in the morning, go by the river, and command them to let my people go so that they may come in and, and worship me. Right? They may go out of the land and, and worship and serve me or else. Right? And we get the or else of the sign of the flies. But this time, it's not going to be gnats. It's going to be a swarm of flies that's going to be as extensive as the gnats. They were going to cover you your servants, your people, and in your houses. And, and, and now at, at this point, just kind of thinking about that, and I'm just, I'm just cringing in the inside. I'm like dying inside reading this, by the way. This is hard. In verse 24, we see the Lord doing exactly what he said he would do in the extent of the damage. It says that the land was ruined by the flies, right? One fly. Think about how one fly, when you're on that nice picnic with your family, right? Yet one fly lands right on that deviled egg and does what? The unmentionable. Thank you. And Miss Beth flats out says it. Exactly. In ways that we can't even, we don't even want to know. It's gross. 
We take that deviled egg and we throw it away if we see it. Or whatever it may be. So imagine flies in the billions landing on everything and doing their thing. Gross. Apocalyptic kind of thing. And again, we see a sovereign God over Egypt, judging Egypt, making his name known here, but we see something different. And this is what I really want to highlight today. I really want to highlight on this particular sign. Because in verses 22 through 23, the Lord specifically says, this time, what is he going to do? He is setting apart the land of Goshen, which is the place where his people lived. Meaning, there's not going to be any flies in Goshen. Now, you tell me how that happens. The power of God. And it says exactly why. Like this, you, you can almost picture it, right? right? So here's Egypt, Goshen's right here, and just think they're like in this shield. And there's flies everywhere, but they can't, they can't penetrate that shield. And this is what the Lord says, why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now think about how amazing it would be to see that. I don't want to be there, but... Now I happen to believe... I, I happen to believe this, that this is the first, that, this, that since the very first sign, I think God has already been making a distinction between his people and Egypt. I don't think this is the first uh, of time. And I think we see hints of that because you see the totality of it being Egypt and Pharaoh's servants and, 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 and Pharaoh himself and his household and their courtyards. And we never see it, a description at all of saying that it coming in within, within Israel. But now we're getting it because God really wants them to know that there is a massive distinction between his people and and Egypt, because the Lord has set his people apart. He separates them, and by that, he sovereignly declares that, his, that there will be no judgment for his people here. <clears throat> and he, why? Because he loves them, because they are his people. That's why. That's the distinction. <clears throat> the distinction is, is his love. The distinction is they're his possession. They're his choice. They were the ones that, that he called. And not only for the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord, but for the Israelites to know that he is their God. And he is their Lord. <clears throat> now we all know that as God's children, that we are not always spared from his judgments. The Bible rightly tells us that it rains on the righteous and the wrong. But one thing is for sure, brothers and sisters, is hear this, is that he is always, he is always over us with his spiritual, or excuse me, his special providence. He's always over us. And so announcing here how he's going to spare his people from this sign or from all the signs, he is, he is emphasizing again his, his sovereignty as God to do this. Listen. His sovereignty to, dis to discriminate in how he chooses. Ooh, that's a shaky word in our culture, isn't it? You're not allowed to discriminate. You discriminate every day. Why did you wear that shirt and not the other shirt? Because you discriminated against it. I wore my green shirt because I didn't want to wear my blue. I must hate blue. No. God discriminated in the way that he chooses. Because he's God. And he has that right because he's God. Who are we to question? Ask Job how that goes. His sovereign hand is, is doing what here, though? Not just against Egypt, but what is he doing for his people? His sovereign hand is working for his people. And what is vastly apparent here is what? Is that as God, he has sent his prophet to announce to Pharaoh, hey, I'm going to spare my people from this. And it's like he's challenging Pharaoh. I'm going to spare my people? What are you going to do for your people? How are you going to spare your people, Pharaoh? Let's see what you got. Dress for action like a man. Let's go. They're just flies. 
What are you going to do? And the magicians already with, with the nets, they, they quit. They're, they bail. This is on you, Pharaoh. We're done. And there's, there's nothing that they could do. And just like for us, brothers and sisters, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that our governments can do that can spare us from the righteous judgment of God. But as Christians, we know he has sent his son. And that is how we are spared the wrath of God. When Pharaoh realizes again how powerless he is, what does he do? He turns to Moses and Aaron, and he's like, hey, let's, let's make a deal. And he gives this offer. And what's interesting in this offer that, that, that Pharaoh makes, even though he's the one that's backed in the corner, what does he make? He makes this offer as if he's the one with all the power. He says in verse 28, I will let you go. What's this I stuff? Who are you, Pharaoh, that you're the one who's going to let us go? No, it is the Lord that's going to deliver them. It's the Lord who's going to redeem them. You're not the Lord. You're not the one who is sovereign. And I like Moses' response to Pharaoh here because now we really see Moses who is understanding and is confident in the sovereignty of God and whom he is serving. Moses doesn't compromise the Pharaoh at all, does he? He says, um, Pharaoh says, hey, I'll let you go sacrifice to your God, but you have to stay in the land. And Moses says, no. Number one, that's not good for you. That's not good for us to make sacrifices here. It's not good for your people. It will not be good for us. But most importantly, that is not what the Lord had said. Uh, this isn't a negotiation, dude. This is an absolute, utter surrender. Unequivocally. Moses stands up and is courageous and obedient to God's word. And then you also hear him do this, which is, I think is incredible. He warns Pharaoh, don't you lie to us again. Be warned, don't lie again. And of course, as we see that he does, where do you think that that kind of boldness comes from? It comes from a firm confidence in a Lord and that will keep us from compromising or bending the truth. And this is why we, we do not just assume the sovereignty of God. Yeah, yeah, God is in control. I, I get that. And just completely dismiss it. That's why we don't say God is sovereign, yeah, but. Yeah, but does not go after God is sovereign. It is a definitive statement indicative of truth that everything else after that is predicated upon. There's nothing else. You cannot say, yeah, but after the sovereignty of God. You say, praise God, I'm going to rely and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me understand it more that I may believe it more. That's what it is. It's an absolute surrender and submission underneath it. And Moses shows us how uncompromising we should be to this truth. We firmly preach it and teach it because this is what we live by. It is our firm foundation to which we stand, to why we will never compromise the truth or holiness or obedience to the word of God. And in verse 32, we see more. We see God's faithfulness again to answer Moses' prayer despite how Pharaoh is going to go back on his word. The Lord is faithful. He's proven his faithfulness over Pharaoh. Remember last week, Pharaoh's the liar, not God. God is the one who is all of all truth. He is faithful, and he is faithful in his sovereignty. And brothers and sisters, in his sovereignty, he is working out all things for the glory of his name and for all who love him. And that certainly reminds us of Romans 8, 28, doesn't it? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you want to know what's amazing? There's a lot of amazing things, but this is amazing particularly about that in context with our sermon today and the message today. Is that Romans 8 is the New Testament. We've been teaching about the Old Testament. And yet the same theme from the Old Testament all the way back in Exodus chapter 8 is the exact same truth that is proclaimed in Romans 8. The thread of a sovereign God who loves his people 
and cares for his people, who is faithful to his people, who has not left his people, who will deliver his people, who will redeem his people, who cares for his people, it flows throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. It's here, it's not just an exodus. It's not just in this, this story of Moses and Pharaoh, and God is only sovereign over, over Pharaoh, but it flows all the way into the, the New Testament, and it's perfectly, abundantly, ultimately displayed in, in Jesus Christ, in his person, and in his work, because he was the one who was sent to be the propitiation of our sins. And why? 1 John 4, chapter, verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10, not because we have been, that we have loved him, but he loved us. And let that sink in. Like, let that just marinate on your soul this morning. Not that we have loved him, but he loved us. Why? Because he loves us in his sovereignty. And because of that, he is working all things out for your good, for those who love him. And according to his sovereign hand, he has made you to know him. As he is making himself known to the Egyptians, brothers and sisters, by his mercy and by his grace, he has made you, if you are in Christ, to know Praise God. We have come to know him by his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So who in the world would have ever thought that from gnats and flies could come to a people thousands of years later to delight in the glories and the grace of Jesus Christ. For unbelievers here this morning, this is a call again for you to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. To believe in him and know that he is the only one that can save you. And yet for the Christian, it is ours, brothers and sisters, to delight. love, for our affections to be drawn toward, to set your mind on the things that are above, as Colossians 3 says, because your God, who is your heavenly Father, he is sovereign. He is sovereign even over the dust, and his sovereignty is at work for you. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.